Saturate USA, our participation as well as all the churches throughout this country, we ask that you would bless it and grant these, grant these churches favor with these homes, that they would see the DVD and something inside of them would say, I need Jesus. They'd watch it and they would find you. Lord, we need a revival in our country more than anything else. So please, bring revival. And revive us. I ask that you would teach us this morning from your word just these incredible truths about what your son provided for us. And that it would stir deep within our hearts so much so that it would cause us to want to be holy and to reach out to others as well. So teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18, page 655 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse. And today we're at this section. I'm entitling The Perfect Sacrifice. Do you want to be perfect? Yes is a good answer. Okay. Let me show you a video clip of perhaps a not-so-perfect one who thinks he's perfect. So what do you want out of life, anyway? I guess I want what everybody wants, you know. Career, love, marriage, children. Are you seeing anyone? I think this is getting too personal. I don't think I'm ready to share this with you. How about you? What do you want? What I really want is someone like you. (laughs) Oh, please. Well, why not? What are you looking for? Who is your perfect guy? Well, first of all, he's too humble to know he's perfect. That's me. He's intelligent, supportive, funny. Intelligent, supportive, funny. Me, me, me. He's romantic and courageous. Me also. He's got a good body, but he doesn't have to look in the mirror every two minutes. I have a great body, and sometimes I go months without looking. Uh, He's kind, sensitive, and gentle. He's not afraid to cry in front of me. This is a man we're talking about, right? He likes animals and children, and he'll change poopy diapers. Does he have to use the word poopy? Oh, and he plays an instrument, and he loves his mother. I am really close on this one. Really, really close. Bill, I don't think so. All right. But do you want to be perfect? Not like that, but in the way that God wants. God wants you to be. And he does it by providing the perfect sacrifice and declaring perfect those who receive the benefits of the perfect sacrifice. And then he begins to make what he has declared to be. Now, before we continue, what is the essence of perfection or holiness? You might be surprised. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, Deuteronomy is, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
This is what's known as the Shema in Hebrew understanding, probably the most important passage of the Hebrew Scriptures to the Jewish people. And it says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. At every opportunity, talk about these things as a family. Teach them to your children. But it is to love God, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. That is what it means to be perfect. Ruth Paxson in her classic book, Rivers of Living Water, says this, Holiness is, then, a heart of pure love for God. Such holiness is winsome, for it spells the holy calm of God mirrored in the face, the holy quietness of God manifested in the voice, the holy graciousness of God expressed in the manner, and the holy fragrance of God emanating from the whole life. Is such winsome holiness yours? In looking at the perfect sacrifice, first we will see the Old Testament sacrifice was imperfect. Second, the New Testament sacrifice was perfect. And third, the results were perfect. Okay? So let's look at it. First of all, we have in verses 1 through 4, the Old Testament sacrifice was imperfect. It begins... Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, purified once for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So we see here the imperfect Old Testament sacrifice. In fact, he concludes it's impossible for the bulls and goats, their blood, to take away sins. It begins, though, with this idea of the law being a shadow. It's just a shadow. Okay, well, what is a shadow? Sometimes we have different ideas of this. For instance, uh, Lord of the Rings, if you watch that, it talks a lot about the shadow. And it's, and it's referring to the darkness and the gloom and, 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 and bad, right? Okay, well, that's not what it's talking about here, okay? Others, when they think of the shadow, they think of Plato's cave, okay, if you're a philosopher, where the, re, the, wor- the world we live in is not real. It's just a shadow of the real ultimate world. And that's not at all what he's talking about either, okay? Or is it an imperfect temporary ordinance picturing the ultimate sacrifice and actually pointing to it. And that's what he's referring to here. The shadow, the law, is an imperfect and temporary ordinance, as we've seen in previous messages, but it pictures the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ and actually points us to that ultimate sacrifice. You see, what we learn from the Old Testament sacrifices is that God allows substitution. 
He demands perfection. In fact, if you are not perfect, you will not be able to get in to the presence of God or go to heaven. But we see here that he allows substitution. If you're not perfect, but you've trusted in Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, then that substitute, he pays the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. And in by our faith in him, that substitution, we are counted as perfect and allowed into his presence and into heaven. Okay, The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. But Jesus' death on the cross did do it. Now, he also goes on in this passage and says that it's a reminder of sin. You see, they would do this year after year after year because it never perfected the worshipers, but it was actually a reminder of sin. Now, by the way, this is a good thing. We need to be reminded of how bad sin is. Sin is the enemy. Sin hurts everyone. It has wrecked the world. And we need to be reminded of that. Something that I have practiced ever since I became a believer, and that is I read the Bible, specifically some of the Old Testament and some of the New Testament, every day. And I know some of you think, well, I just don't like the Old Testament. You know, you read that thing and it seems so negative and it's hard to understand. But there's a point that really helps me. Right now I'm in Jeremiah, okay? Jeremiah is a depressing book, right? But what it, what it says to me as I'm reading through it, this is how bad sin is. I need to be reminded of that so that I won't be sucked in to a life of sin. And so we need this reminder so this is not a bad thing. Um, now, and also, by the way, this doesn't mean that they weren't forgiven in the Old Testament. Now, the blood of bulls and goats didn't bring about the forgiveness of sins, but they were forgiven because they were trusting in God's provision. They didn't know that these animals actually pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but their trust in God and his provision did bring about their forgiveness because God counts their faith as righteousness, as we learn from the covenant with Abraham. And so we see that, yes, they were forgiven, okay, by trusting in God's provision, which we now know is ultimately the sacrifice of Christ. Now, tragically, what happened, though? Okay, Jesus died and rose again around 30 A.D., right? And then 70 A.D., the Romans came and destroyed the temple, So in 40 years, after 40 years, the temple's destroyed, and therefore there's no more sacrifices. So the Jews, because they can only offer the sacrifices in the temple, they stopped offering sacrifices. Now what tragically took place from that event is that post-70 A.D. rabbinic Judaism, that's typically you know what we think of as in the Middle Ages, that Judaism, they actually changed and distorted the gospel, distorted the way a person was saved because it used to be through faith in God's provision if a person truly came with a repentant heart and trusted that God allows substitution. If, but, but now without any sacrifices, they changed it and they began to teach, and you can see this in their writings, they began to teach that a, a reaffirmation of 
committing to, to obey the law is how you got forgiven. In other words, you're forgiven by your works. And so you see that in, in rabbinic Judaism, and tragically in the Middle Ages, in much of Christianity, you see the same thing beginning to develop, where many began to mix works with grace as far as salvation is concerned. There were some shining exceptions to that. Uh, one of my favorites is Gottschalk. Okay, you've probably never heard of the guy, right? Gottschalk. You just got to remember, do you got chalk? Okay, and that's how you remember his name. But Gottschalk or Gregory of Rimini, John Wycliffe, Jan Hus, these are, and many others were some great exceptions to this. But we need to be reminded of sin so we will completely lean on God's grace for forgiveness and never Abandon the true gospel that we see in the, the perfect sacrifice. So the Old, Old Testament sacrifice was imperfect, but next we see that verses 5 through 9, the New Testament sacrifice was perfect. Look what it says. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. After he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. So we see here the New Testament sacrifice was perfect. And he begins by quoting Psalm 40. Okay, Psalm 40 reveals God's design. Now let me help you with a little thought here. In the first century, uh, this was a very much an oral culture. Okay, they didn't everybody have a Bible like we have, okay? And in an oral culture, they did a lot of memorizing. They'd hear the stories and the truths and they would memorize them. So when they heard, and quite often in the New Testament, when it quotes a particular verse of the Old Testament, the original readers would associate it with the whole passage, okay? Because they knew the whole passage. So if they're, they hear of this portion of Psalm 40 and they remember, oh, that's... They don't say Psalm 40 because they didn't have them numbered or anything, but they'll, they'll say, oh, that's the, the passage that begins, I waited patiently for the Lord. And they would remember the context of it. Look at Psalm 40 to see what would have triggered their minds you know, when they see this quote, the way it begins. Because this is a Psalm of David, and David is clearly going through a very difficult time in his life, which obviously the people could relate to. And so they really loved this passage. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. 
He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. Verse 6 through 8 is the passage he actually quotes. But they would have remembered this beginning. David, who waited patiently for the Lord, he was in a pit of some sort. Muddy clay he was clearly stuck. It was just a horrible situation, whether he's, you know, whatever he's talking about in, in this passage here. But he said the, he waited patiently. He trusted in God, waiting patiently. And what did God do? He came through. He didn't come through right away, but he did come through. And he set his feet on the rock, and he did in such a way that he put a song in David's heart. And, and, and from that, many actually came to the Lord. It says, many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. And so with this, God's design, we trust God. We trust in God that he knows what he's doing, no matter what's going on in our life, and that his ultimate plan, we see as he continues on, is Jesus. He prepared, it says back in our passage here, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. Here he's referring to the incarnation. So he prepared, uh, pointing out that Jesus, who is God, would take on a second nature, that of humanity, and become a human being and ultimately die in our place. Okay, so, so this is God's plan. Trust in God, first of all. In my early walk with God, when I first really embraced him as my Lord and Savior, Music was very important to me. It really helped me in my troubles, in my difficulties, and, and it encouraged me. I used to have one of those uh, Walkmans. Remember the Walkmans, the little cassette things? Okay, they, they, they have them in museums now. Okay, but the, the little Walkmans, and I had my headphones, and, and I listened to the bands like the second chapter of Acts or, or Larry Norman and Phil Keggy. You remember them? You know, okay, all you old people like me. All right. But I, I mean, it just it resonated with my heart. It gave me courage to say, yes, I will wait patiently for the Lord. And, and, and music really was a blessing to me, but encouraged me to, to faith, to trust in God and his provision. Now, what's interesting about this quote that he's quoting, uh, he uses four different words here where we see from these four different words, all the Levitical sacrifices are summed up in Jesus' death. He says, you did not desire sacrifice and an offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Those four different words in the Greek translation of the Old Testament represent the four major types of sacrifices found in the book of Leviticus. And so he's saying here that his body as the ultimate sacrifice sums up all of the sacrifices. Um, and, uh, and so we see this true in God's ultimate plan, which comes through Jesus Christ. And then he finishes this by saying the old covenant is taken away. He says, I've come to do your will, to die on the cross for us. He takes away the first, the old covenant laws, to establish the second, the new covenant found in Jesus Christ and trusting in his ultimate sacrifice of himself. This, when it says 
um, takes away. The NIV says sets aside. The ESV says does away with. Um, this is anireo, which means to take away, destroy, or put to death. So done, over. New covenant. We trust in Jesus Christ and his ultimate sacrifice of himself. So the old covenant, blood of bulls and goats, no longer necessary. This is good news to the bulls and goats. Right? But it's also good news to us that his ultimate sacrifice as we trust in him and what he did for us, our sins are completely forgiven, uh, completely taken care of. Jesus' offering was of infinite value. That's why it works. See, the, the bulls and goats didn't work because they, they weren't voluntary and they weren't of infinite value. Whereas Jesus, who is God himself, his death on the cross was of infinite value. It was inf- See, he had to be a human in order to die for us, but he also had to be God in order for his offering to be of infinite value. And it had to be infinitely valuable in order to pay for all the sins of the whole world, right? So, But here we see that that's exactly what we have in the death of Jesus Christ with this infinite worth and infinite value. Uh, but it doesn't work unless you receive the benefits by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus Christ, putting your trust in him outwardly in the Bible, outwardly expressing that faith in baptism. And so this is God's plan. He's provided for us. When we repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven completely. And that is the perfect sacrifice with the results of we're also perfect, we see in verses 10 through 18. Look at this. By this will, so Jesus came to do his will, to become a, take on the second nature, that of humanity, become a human being, and live a perfect life and allow his own creation to kill him on the cross. Uh, so I have come to do your will. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. That's my favorite verse of the passage. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So we see the results were perfect. And he begins with this idea that we are sanctified. I mean, this is what he says, verse 10. By this will, we have been, perfect tense, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ 
once for all time. If you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been sanctified. Now, we need to understand sanctification. There is a positional as well as an ongoing aspect of sanctification. Most people think of it as the ongoing aspect, but there's a positional. This is actually referring to the positional. You have been sanctified. To be sanctified literally means to be set apart, okay? So when you place your faith in Christ, you are set apart to God. Now you also, when you repent of your sins, you are set apart from sin. So sanctification, to be sanctified, is to be set apart from sin and to God. That's what it means. When you are born again, you have been set apart. You are sanctified positionally, okay? And that's what he's referring to. Uh, David Peterson, in his book, Possessed by God, kind of a cool title, don't you think? Possessed by God, He says this, Paul also reminds the Corinthians that they were called to be saints. The adjective holy in Greek, hagias, uh, comes from the same root as the verb to consecrate, sanctify, or make holy. So the designation holy ones or saints is a shorthand way of referring to those who have been sanctified in Christ. That means all believers, right? So if you are a true believer, if you've been born again, you are a saint, right? That's what the word means. He goes on, though, and he shows the, the, the tragedy. He says, one of the tragedies of church history, that in, in official as well as popular usage, the term saint has become too narrowly identified with apostles or outstanding Christian leaders and exemplars. The notion that all Christians are saints by virtue of God's calling is obscured by this misleading practice. If a particular individual's sanctity is celebrated, it suggests that personal holiness is in some way a departure from the norm. Worse still, it implies that sainthood is an achievement, not a gift. If someone says she's a real saint, it ought in truth to mean she's a real Christian. If you're a believer, you are a saint, according to the Bible. And so because you have been sanctified. And then he goes on and he says we are perfected forever. My favorite verse, verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. So if you're a believer, you have been perfected forever. Now, that's good news, but it's kind of hard to, you know, like, but I know me, right? And I know you too. So, so, but this is what he says, and he sets it up, okay, first of all, he has, you know, all the priests, they go back and forth, you know, notice there's no chairs in the temple, because they're never finished, whereas Jesus, he offers it once, and then it says he sits down at the right hand of God, verse 12, and then specifically, he's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. So Jesus is sitting. Psalm 110 verse 1 reflects this as well. He's seated waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. And that's when once all of his enemies are made his footstool, then it's done. 
okay? Now, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25 through 26, because this brings out an important part of the enemies that he's waiting to be made his footstool. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. He says, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So same concept as what we're seeing here. But look at what he goes on to say, verse 26. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Death is an enemy. Death is not the way it is supposed to be. There are actually many here this morning who have just recently experienced a death in your family, and my heart goes out to you. Uh, uh, Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is disruptive. God, it is not natural. God created us to live forever, but sin came in and brought death and destruction and has wrecked this world, and we long for this day. When death is is at the footstool of Jesus' feet, it is completely conquered. It is done away with. Revelation 21 speaks of that day. When, when, When Christ returns and it says there will be no more death, no more crying, no more sorrow. That's what we long for. By the way, if we're living in this world, living as if this is my home, we are going to be disappointed. Because this world is wrecked. But if we are living for the king who someday is coming back and is going to wipe out even death, all the enemies, all evil is going to be gone, that's going to be a glorious day. I want to live for him now as his soldier. I want to then long for and look to that time when he returns, and then we're going to have a party, okay? And that's what, that's what we have to have and, and, and understand. But Jesus is sitting because it's a done deal. That is exactly what's going to happen. By the way, Jesus died on the cross, and then he rose again from the dead, right? If he rose again from the dead, that proves that the rest of this stuff is going to happen. And death is going to be wiped out, and we are going to reign with him forever. So that's what we long for. Jesus is sitting, and he says, it's interesting, he declares us perfect. He has perfected forever. Uh, Once again, a perfect participle there. He has perfected forever. This concept is also found in, in a, a similar idea of, what's, of Paul, what, when Paul talks of righteousness, that we are declared righteous, that we are declared perfectly righteous simply by our faith in Jesus Christ. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Just one of many passages uh, we could turn to. Uh, Romans chapter 4, 1 through 5 is a great passage as well. Um, but look at Philippians 3, 9. Uh, he's speaking of this so that he might gain Christ and be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. So not my own righteousness. If I'm trusting in my own righteousness, my own righteousness isn't enough, right? None of you are perfect. 
Not, and I'm not either, okay? So my righteousness isn't enough. And God, he does not grade on a curve. He expects absolute perfection, but he accepts substitution. And what we learn from Abraham, he counts faith as the perfect righteousness. So you place your faith in Christ. So not depending on your own righteousness, but on that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, God's righteousness, which is perfect. And specifically, we know he's referring to Jesus' righteousness. Jesus lived a perfect life in our place as our substitute. So when I repent and place my faith in Christ, my sins get put on Christ. He suffers the very wrath of God, paying the penalty I was supposed to pay for my sins. And his perfect righteousness is put to my account. And I'm seen by God as perfect, has been perfected forever. Ha! <laughs> what a deal. Yeah. This, this is God's plan. Okay, it's a beauty. Let me tell you. We are declared perfect, and then we are in the process of being made holy, of being made what we've been declared to be. Now, this is where I do have a little problem with this version. Even though I love the CSB, this version is not the best because it says he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. It literally, the ESV is much better, those who are being sanctified. This is a present passive participle. So it is an ongoing thing. Those who are being sanctified. The NIV, I think, even puts it better because it gives the real contrast. It says those who are being made holy. Okay, He's perfected forever those who are being made holy. So we're positionally declared completely righteous and perfect sanctified, and then God begins the process of making us what he's declared us to be. And by the way, it's a done deal because God is the one who's doing it. Now, so if we're in the process, though, of being made holy, then you might not be satisfied yet with your holiness. Are you satisfied with your holiness? Okay. And if you're not satisfied with your holiness, that's probably good. Because that means God isn't finished with you yet. In fact, if you are satisfied with your holiness, you might not even be a Christian because you're not convicted. Christians love God. We love God. And our sin hurts God. And if you love someone, you don't want to cause pain. According to Genesis 6, our sin causes pain. God's heart. And so we love him. We want to obey. We want to get better at this thing called sanctification. And then God begins to do that work. But it starts where we are forgiven. We are forgiven. He says, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Saw this story. Uh, Paca is a common name in Spain. An ad in the Barcelona paper said, Dear Paca, your father loves you and he forgives you. Please meet me at five o'clock tomorrow afternoon in front of the cathedral. And 500 Pacas showed up. 
thinking maybe it was their father. We all have this deep need to be forgiven of our sins. And according to this word, if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him and him alone for your salvation, you are forgiven completely, completely forgiven of all of your sin, past, present, and even future sin. We are forgiven. The passage Starting in verse 15, it says the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. He's the ultimate author using human beings. But he's the one, it says here, that had these things written. And what we see is that the plan of God changes us from the inside out. He's now quoting again Jeremiah. We've seen him quote this already the book of, in the book of Hebrews, but he's quoting again because it's very important that we get this. He says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. So Old Testament predicts the new covenant to come with, that Jesus brings. And here it is. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds and I will never again remember their sins. Okay, so he changes us from the inside out. So when we're positionally sanctified, then God begins to work on us from the inside out, changing us and making us the way we're supposed to be. This is a brilliant plan, okay? Let me read an illustration that shows you uh, another way. In Max Lucado's book, Applause of Heaven, uh, he tells this story. He says, when my family lived in Rio de Janeiro, I owned a ham radio. I kept it in the utility room on top of the freezer. When we traveled, I always unplugged the radio and disconnected the antenna. Once, when we were leaving for a week-long trip, I remembered I hadn't unplugged the radio. I ran back in the house, pulled the plug, and dashed out again. But I pulled the wrong plug. I unplugged the freezer. It was summertime, and summer in Rio redefines the word hot. Our apartment was on the top of a 14-floor apartment building, which adds another degree of intensity to the word hot. For seven days, then, a freezer full of food sat in a sweltering apartment with the power off. Why are you groaning? When we came home, Denelin decided to get some meat out of the freezer. As she opened the freezer door, well, I won't go into details as to what she saw, but I will say it was a moving experience. (laughs) Guess who got fingered as the one who had unplugged the freezer and who therefore would be responsible for cleaning it? You got it, so I got to work. What is the best way to clean out a rotten interior? I knew exactly what to do. I got a rag and a bucket of soapy water and began cleaning the outside of the appliance. I was sure the odor would disappear with a good shine, so I polished and buffed and wiped. When I was through, the freezer could have passed a marine boot camp inspection. It was sparkling. But when I opened the door, that freezer was revolting. Are you wondering now what kind of fool would do that? Read on and you'll see. 
No problem, I thought. I knew what to do. This freezer needs some friends. I'd stink, too, if I had the social life of a machine in a utility room. So I threw a party. I invited all the appliances from the neighborhood kitchens. It was hard work, but we filled our apartment with refrigerators, stoves, microwaves, and washing machines. It was a great party. A couple of toasters recognized each other from the appliance store. Everyone played pin the plug on the socket and had a few laughs about limited warranties. The blenders were the hit, though. They really mixed well. I was sure the social interaction would cure the inside of my freezer, but I was wrong. I opened it up, and the stink was even worse. Now what? I had an idea. If a polish job wouldn't do it and a social life didn't help, I'd give the freezer some status. I bought a Mercedes sticker and stuck it on the door. I painted a paisley tie down the front. I put a Save the Whales bumper sticker on the rear and installed a cellular phone on the side. That freezer was classy. It was stylish. It was cool. Get it? Cool. I splashed it with cologne and gave it a credit card for clout. Then I backed away and admired the high-class freezer. Then I opened the door, expecting to see a clean inside, but what I saw was putrid, a stinky and repulsive interior. I know what you're thinking. The only thing worse than Max's humor is his common sense. Who would concentrate on the outside when the problem is on the inside. That's why God works from the inside out. Declares us holy by our faith in Jesus Christ. And then he begins the work of holiness. He accepts us just as we are, but he does not leave us as we are. In fact, the Bible indicates he will do whatever it takes to make us holy. And this is a great plan because it does work. Forgiveness is a gift of God's grace. You'll notice there is no altar in the front of this church. No sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins of any sort take place because the ultimate sacrifice has already been made through Jesus Christ. It is a forgiveness with no strings attached that changes us from the inside out. So do you want to be perfect? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are not perfect in our actions and our deeds. And it's humbling when we are reminded of sin and how bad it is. But it's so peaceful to recognize that Jesus Christ has taken care of it all and that we are completely forgiven when we place our faith in you and your finished work on the cross. Forgive us. And we do invite you to come inside and to work from the inside out, making us what you've declared us to be. We want to be perfect because it honors you. Father, I do pray that you would help each of us, that it wouldn't hurt too much, but that you would sanctify us. 
We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship our great God.